Welcome to the Mentality Podcast. This is episode 21 and it's with Brian McDermott. Brian has won four grand finals, two Challenge Cups, one League Leader's Shield and a World Cup Challenge over the course of eight years as the head coach at the Leeds Rhinos. He's an interesting man. He's an intriguing man. He's my old boss and he is a man that never does long-form interviews. But we managed to get him on the podcast couch down here at Weewood All Hotel and we spoke for an hour and 20 minutes. We dive deep into a range of topics, starting right back at his childhood, going through to his time in the Marines, transitioning to a short career in boxing, his time as a rugby league player, and then eight years at the Leeds Rhinos leading up to now as the head coach for Toronto Wolfpack. This is where I want to just give a shout out to Response Mortgages and Andrew Quinn before we kick off this podcast. When I was 18, Matt gifted me a debut and played me in two finals that year, just months after finishing my A-level, so it was a bit of a hectic year for me, but I was incredibly lucky to be able to buy my first house at that time. And knowing Andrew through the Leeds Rhinos and knowing him now as a good mate, I want to give him a shout out for sponsoring and supporting the Mentality Podcast and the cause for what we're doing. As a first time buyer, I didn't have a clue what I was doing in mortgages. Um, I feel like they should probably teach kids what mortgages are in school. But anyway, I uh, wanted to give a shout out to Andrew because if I can remember the first time that we sat down with Andrew and the guys at Response Mortgages and it made it very seamless for me as an 18 year old and still does now up to this day. At Mentality, we only share and only work with sponsors that we believe in and we believe that they've got good values and support the cause. So if you want to look at Response Mortgages, have a look at the show notes. We'll put some info in there. And with all of that said, I think we will kick on into this podcast. It's a great chat. I think that there is definitely a part two in this. And I thought it was quite unbelievable really to 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 have Mac talk so openly, so honestly, and so helpfully on such an important subject as mental health, what he's been through, what he's had to deal with, and how he also brings a team together and makes teams bond so well and perform so well. So we get the ingredients that Max used over the years, what he's going to use for Toronto Wolfpack, and also how he's a leader of men. Enjoy the podcast. Mark, how are you going, mate? How's life? Good. Good, good. Uh, been very eventful over the last last year, but uh, yeah, pretty good at the moment. Cool. How are you finding Toronto? Uh, the team and the club, very good. Haven't been there yet. We don't go over till back in of April. So uh, we play a big chunk of games over here. We're based in Manchester and uh, we play, I think, 12 games over here. Three of those are meant to be home games. Right. But it's too cold in Toronto through the yeah. winter. So uh, we played those games on the road. I think we played one up at Newcastle. Uh, one's going to be at, uh, at London Scholars Ground. And uh, and then, you know, after those block of 12 games, then we go over for a couple of stints over in Toronto, play some genuine home games, come back over here for a couple, do that two or three times through the year. So... I'm looking forward to going to the city of city of Toronto, mm. but uh, the team and players good. It's uh, it's been an interesting time. I was eight years with the Rhinos, so got to know the players really well, got to know the staff really well, got to know the club really well, and uh, had great relationships with with all those people. So when it changes, you got to start all that again, which yeah. can be a bit a bit daunting, but. Uh, but it's good as well. It's, uh, you start you start to get to know another group of people. You start to build those relationships again, and 
you can't rush any of those relationships. You can't rush the trust that the players and coaches have got to have. You can't force it. You can't demand respect. Mm. Uh, the, you've got to go through experiences with each other. So, uh, yeah, pretty good. You know, if you ask me, how is it going? Yeah, pretty good. We've gone okay. Not playing brilliantly, but uh, we've won a lot of games so far in the year. Lost a, lost a game, uh, which is good for our learning curve. So, uh, good start, really. Yeah, so just to fill, this is to fill people watching and people listening in. During eight seasons at Leeds, you won four grand finals, two Challenge Cups, a League Leader Shield and a World Cup Challenge. Um, those eight seasons is quite unique to me because that's the, the duration of, of my career, really. Seems like a long time, eight seasons now looking back, but um, generally before this year, you're the only coach I had. So it's quite it's quite a unique situation to be sat down talking to you. Um, and you spoke about relationships there, building relationships. And, and I think that was one of the big things that we had at Leeds. We Everyone knew each other. We had such a great team um, from when you took over, I guess. Um, what are the dynamics or how do you look to bring a team together so that's staying on point with Toronto what things do you specifically look at or what things do you look to kind of control or, or, or bed in at a new club when you go into a team like Toronto which is on the rise to answer that I'll take you back to my first head coach's job which was at London yeah and uh, I didn't do a lot of things well at London and it's a great place to make your mistakes because it's not under the under the radar. It's not in the heartlands. And uh, got a lot of stuff wrong. Head coaching is incredibly easy to get wrong. Yeah. It's really hard to get right and so easy to get wrong. Uh, but uh, but I will say this, and when I was at London, I had a good vision. I realised this early, that you've got to have a vision about what, what you want it to look like. And that phrase has stayed with me forever, that... When I, was, I told the London boys about how I want them to defend, how I want them to attack, you know, you can open up the book there and you can you can carry on speaking for three days without taking a breath and you've probably just got through the first chapter. Mm. Uh, but throughout all this, you you yourself as a coach, you've got to know what it looks like. You've got to know what the vision is. Uh, how does it look when they're playing really well? Not copying other people's format, not co copying other people's systems and not just specific players. What does a really good performance look like? And I think I got that really well with London. Uh, no fairy tale ending to my time at London. We never won any silverware, but I gotta say that we won a lot of games that, on paper, we probably should never have won, uh, and surprised a few people. And proud to say that you know a lot of players paid, played, and punched above their weight. So by the time I came to Leeds, that that was a thing that that, that uh, I tried to really ram down the place ropes really what does it look like to start with that doesn't mean to say you're going to get it right because mm. what your vision might be wrong uh, in my first couple of years at Leeds we were inconsistent as anything and uh, interestingly won both grand finals in my first couple of years but uh, and, and you know I think when, from the start of the year to the end of the year the, the level of improvement from the, the start to the end was incredible in both seasons so, uh, but the, in answer to your question, you've got to have a vision first about what you want it to look like and then make everybody else fit into that vision. Yeah. Uh, Does it have to come from them as well? Does it have to come well, from players? And I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself. You've got, it isn't a contradiction. You've got to base your vision on what the players can and can't do. Yeah. 
you know, it's a really obvious one. You've got a big set of mules across the board. Well, you're probably not going to play uh, expansive stuff, and you're not you're not going to play really fast paced stuff. You know, you're going to play a lot of power stuff. Uh, so, a really simplistic way of explaining: work out what your team was capable of. And you know, I've got to say, when I went to Leeds, you know, I didn't start that process. That start that process had started from from Tony Smith in two thousand and four. And he put a, a system or a, almost a philosophy of playing in place that when I came back as head coach after being an assistant to Tony, it was already there. It was still there. Uh, but you've got to you've got to put your own stamp on it. And certainly mm. through the tough times, you've got to you've got to you've got to warn it. You can't just copy somebody else's system because when it gets tough, when you start losing games, what do you do then? Mm. You've got to warn the, the thing. So uh, the bit which we're onto at the moment and the exciting bit is is giving them a vision of what it looks like without sprinting first. We're still walking, we're not even jogging yet as a, as a group, metaphorically. And, uh, and and getting them to buy into what it is it looks like. So that, mean, that includes and means some players altering their game. It means some players maybe playing in a different position. It certainly involves defending differently. If every coach has his own way of defending, it certainly involves what you do in attack and where you get people to stand. But they're the only the icing on the cake in terms of performance. So um, we're still at that stage. I've only been there. I've only been with them for seven games, so it's really early stages. Uh, but again, I'm enjoying putting those things in place and getting them to believe in in what I, I what it is I believe is going to be a, a successful team. Yeah, um, I just want to, if we can, uh, um, take people back because i want to dig into what life was like when you were a youngster going up i want to talk about um do we have to we can do go you fancy go. it yeah um and, and also i feel like i don't have a choice stevie in this well, when you say do you fancy i feel like i don't have a choice i'm in the room <laughs> yeah. aren't i i've got you there mate i've got you there yeah. um and how that progressed mate to to joining the marines or um taking on the boxing that you did and then for, for i want to i want because mentality um I speak to people, I make connections with people because I think like there's messages that people can get yep. um, to positively, positively live the life. Um, and we speak to, to, to a range of different people and I think that you, you will have a lot of messages and a lot of things that you can tell people and um, change their perspectives really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you can speak about going up, if you can speak about how you ended up in the Marines, what happened to the Marines, um, and that's you know. Well, I'll give you I'll give you a brief outline, and I'll let you pick the bones out of it and ask some questions on it. Go on then, yeah. rather than me speaking for fifteen minutes without a breath. You uh, can do that as well if you want. But yeah, just it, it's worth mentioning. You've been asking me to do this for a while now. Yeah. And uh, and I've always been a bit hesitant of doing it because I know if I'm going to do it for this for your for your bit for your your show, so uh, you can't just come on and just say yeah uh, you know, at the end of the day when the ball's in the back of the net five drives and a kick and mm. thank you very much you know mm. you, it's, that's not what it's about is it no. it's not a Sky interview is it it's not no. a BBC rugby league interview no. it's, it's a bit more it's, it's a bit, bit more than that and that's what I'm here for so I've always felt look once I'm sat in a chair <laughs> you, can't, you can't go back can't, can't go back it's been it's been a bit of build up on it we look to do it last summer well, you, you, you was asking me before before I got departed yeah 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 so and, uh, we kind of went to do it around that time and yeah. for those reasons it didn't end up happening. So 
I uh, I realised when I was when I was an assistant coach there was a there was a moment for me as an assistant coach under Tony Smith I was driving home from Huddersfield that was my first role mm-hmm. after a packed in plane and uh, it was a turbulent time uh, and Tony did a, a brilliant job with me in in changing my not so much how I thought but just how I acted and, and most things. Uh, and he said one day that uh, how I don't, old were you? Thirty-three. Thirty-three. I was yeah. thirty-three. He said, "I don't think you've. I don't think you're going to be a coach, Mark." He says, "I don't. You're just too narrow-minded. You're just not willing to listen to anybody else's opinion. You just." He said, "I can't. I can't see where, where, where it's where the coaching." He says, I, "I listen to you speak about how you catch, how you tackle, how you want to run and play." He said, "No, that's okay." He said, "But the coaching is much more than that." I'm giving you the really diplomatic version. He mm. said a lot more than that, and a lot, mm. you know, and we had a, a very colourful conversation. I, dro- I remember driving home and I remember thinking it was a, a moment in my me, life, really. I remember thinking, you're right. I got no comeback there. Not, he's right, and uh, yeah, but somebody else's fault. It was just one of those moments I thought, he's right. Mm. And, uh, and I had to change, and I did change. I changed still you don't ever change who you are I don't believe that to be true you Mm. can change how you act but that demon's still in you Mm. and I realised then that my childhood is that in direct contradiction to what makes a coach so I was born into a a Catholic family and uh, I will say the majority of my brothers and sisters are very good but there's a few in there of my family and certainly my my mum and dad my mum and dad conducted themselves it just absolutely was a, a do as I say upbringing, and uh, not allowed to ask a question. If if anything sounded or seemed not right, you just had to get on and do it. Uh, nothing was ever explained to you. Nothing was ever informed, and uh, and if you and if you didn't react quick enough, and if you didn't do something quick enough, it was normally dealt with with violence whether that be physical or just the way that people spoke to you. Uh, the way my mum and dad would speak to us at times, and I've got to say, it wasn't all the time. You know, they were, they were brilliant mums and dad. I'm, yeah. I'm the youngest of 10 kids, so it won't have, e- yeah. have been easy. But I don't use that. I don't think that justifies any of what, what I'm talking about. And uh, if they, if you didn't move quick enough or, or do what, was, what you were told to do within a fraction of a second, it was dealt with with either a blow or something verbal, and uh, which was nasty, and we got brought up like that. And the brother, the brothers don't have much loyalty to each other. The sisters are good. I got two girls; they're great, uh, and they suffered a hell of a lot having eight brothers. Uh, and by the time I'd left home, I joined up. I joined the Royal Marines and applied to join at sixteen. Uh, by the time I left home, I was this ball of aggression and anger and questions and no answers. Mm. Uh, and guess what? I went and joined the most violent bunch of men that year that's ever going to walk planet Earth. Uh, weirdly, it's almost the most disciplined, fittest, you know, professional outfit you're ever going to be as well. And that's probably what saved me. That's probably what kept me sane, if you like, or kept me. So, but by the time I'd uh, I'd left the Royal Marines at the age of 22, I did five years. Uh, we did a tour of Northern Ireland, which was very interesting, in South Armagh, and then went to the first Gulf War in Iraq. Uh, and shortly after that, I left and became a, a rugby league player. I gambled 
to be a rugby league player for Bradford Northern. It was semi-pro back then for some people. Is like, this straight out of the Marines? This? Straight out of the Marines. Yeah. I paid myself, we maybe we'll get into it later on, but uh, I, I'd signed on for nine years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you've got to pay to get out. If you want to come out early and that, you've got to break the contract. And I had to pay 525 quid to get out. And I did that. And within a week, I was out because you, you, you should do 18 months notice. Mm. Uh, but they said, look, you can go, mate, because uh, you're always in this shit and it's just the depth that changes with you. So you can go. Mm. And uh, and I, I ended up being a player with Bradford Northern on for no money, really, but I signed a professional contract. But what you had there was the most narrow-minded, almost bigoted bloke ever. And uh, who, who, and the double whammy is, I was big, I was strong, I was athletic, I was one of the best soldiers in the world, been through some things that men don't go through. I had this ultimate confidence in me. So fast forward 10 years, by the time I retired, I thought I knew it all and knew very little. That was that, that mm. was a, a a weird combination of, you know, a weird, a weird dynamic. So, you know, so I fast-tracked there from family to my playing career to, to coaching. But the point is coaching, I, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel, I, mean, I, I don't know how pompous this sounds, but I feel that's what I'm here for. Mm. I feel like I've got a, I don't know if it's actual coaching a group of men about how to catch a ball. I don't think that's me. But getting a group of men to do something that they don't particularly want to do and convincing them that it's in their best interest to do it. I know it's going to hurt and I know you might get injured and I know you might be out of breath and I know some of you are going to, mm. you know, come off bleeding with broken bones or whatever. But I, I think over the years I've, I've developed an ability to get a group of men stood in front of you and still nod and say, okay, coach, we'll go do that. Yeah. How's that? How's that? We, we, we've talked about toughness before and that's kind of what it's this the podcast a year ago has kind of come to now I think transformed into the topic to now how does that perspective what you talked spoke about there standing in front of a group of men giving the message about toughness and, and going out and do that how has that changed from when you were back in the marines when you were going and delivering messages in a different way how, how do you well, feel the, that's the, changed the, the, the message gets delivered di differently you start talking about uh, philosophies of teaching and coaching it changes uh, when I joined the marines uh the, the 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 discipline part of it and what they tell you to be tough is is not reacting and that's exactly the same as what i tell you blokes yeah is i don't care how hurt you are i don't care how much pain you're in you've got a role you've got you've got a, a place to be and just do it mm. unconditionally just do it and that that is the ultimate form of toughness. I, if I could describe what, what I think tough is, is being on the ropes, being punched, and not just putting up with it. That's mm. that's weird. That's sadist, isn't it? Yeah. It's being on the ropes, uh, uh, being punched, and knowing full well that it might make contact with the top of your head or the side of your jaw, but they're not, not, they're not the knockout blows. You're, you're avoiding him touching the bottom of your jaw or knocking you square in your face, because they're the knockout blows. And all the while, all the while, holding your nerve mentally so you can hit back, hmm. smartly hit back. As a player, you're going through a process and you're, you're going end to end, their yardage set, our yardage set, their yardage set, our yardage set. Now, just doing that with a ball of aggression and not noticing what's going on you isn't tough. Hmm. 
There's still some strategy there to it. Well, they're doing it and, and you know, setting up some players and sending some blokes into the teeth of them. And even the blokes who were doing it, being, you know, the soldiers who you're sending in there saying, get a couple of carries there to set the play up. They're, they're aware of where it's at, what's happening. So the next time they go in there, they've got more information. They're gleaning information all the time. I think that's really hard to do. Yeah. I think that's incredibly hard to do to, to be in adversity and still keep your wits about you. Now, anybody, just to be clear, anybody can be an adversity. Anybody can be in a foxhole and the bullets can be flying and the punches can be flying and the tackles can be ferocious. And if you close up and close your mind off and just hope that you don't get injured, that's not tough. Mm. I don't think it's anything bad either, by the way. I'm not, mm. I don't think it's cowardice either. Like it's just, you're taking care of yourself and fair do. There's no drama with that. But the really tough ones who can hold the nerve, the really tough ones who can get a dig in the ribs, a bust lip, a broken nose, who knows, one or two broken fingers, one or two broken limbs, and carry on. And not just carry on under sufferance, carry on with information in their head and execute the following couple of players. I couldn't describe toughness any better than that. Do you think that's why you can almost link it back to what you're talking about before with the, uh, you come up with vision? The team needs to know the vision. You think that's that's a bit of the strategy, really. You need that clear in your head, don't you, to kind of have the the why to to, to carry on with it. So I'll take I'll take it right back to to uh, weapons training the Royal Marines. You do it and do it and you do it and you do it and you do it and you take your weapon apart. You put it back together. You run up hills and through tunnels and you know you get thrown about and uh, and all the while when required. You've got to get your weapon out, put your magazine in, um, cock your weapon, shoot, and do whatever you know. And that yeah. there's a there's a monotonous practice, unbelievable practice. It goes to the the ten thousand hours theory that most people mm. are aware of now. You just do it and do it and do it. So when when you require to do it for real, it's second nature. It's absolutely second nature. Mm. So first off, to my team, what's the vision? You understand the vision, they all understand the vision and the nod. Now we've got to go out and got to condition your bodies to be able to do this on a good day, on a bad day, when it's icy, when it's sunny, when it's hot, when we've got two blocks in bin, when you can still yeah. do this. Yeah. What um what lessons did you learn from boxing when you went into boxing? Did that translate to rugby as well, just as well Marines or? That I wasn't very good. That was the first lesson. Uh <laughs> you had to learn to be good as well. I got to learn to be good. You got to learn to not to be punched. Uh, mm. It's crazy boxing because it uh, it clearly attracts a certain type of guy, doesn't it? Boxing. Yeah. You know the yeah. the game is about fighting. Yeah. Uh, and trying to punch somebody else in the face. Should that one right feel? Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> really, it usually doesn't attract your academics. Yeah. But I got to say this: you look at uh, most very good boxers, certainly all world class boxers. They're all articulate. Mm. They're all smart. They're all clever. They all they all can. Uh, it, it takes a bit. It takes a bit to be to be to stand there. As I've already said, the analogy I've already used about standing there and receiving punches and all the while gleaning information. Mm. Now that's just not just not toughness. It's just not the ability to hold your nerve. They take, there's a fair amount of brain power in there as well. Yeah. It's a type of intelligence, that, isn't it? And I think you'd probably think Mayweather's an intelligent boxer, wouldn't you? Everything he's got the like the full package, and he probably plays the game well. But what do you think is intelligent toughness? What's what 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 would you? I think you've you've already stated there. 
to have that strategy, to have that vision in the back of your mind. But well, I, I so when I when I left the Marines, I I joined Braff and Northern, uh, signed a contract for three thousand pounds over two years, right? Yeah, and uh, went through a a uh, I went through a period where. You know, I just weren't weren't making any money. Uh, I real I was working for my dad being a plaster, but I was playing in a competition that was turning full time. Most people were turning full time. Peter Sm Peter Fox left. Brian Smith came, the Australian coach, and uh, the sport went full time. And Brian Smith said to me, "I'll keep this really brief here." He said to me, you "Don't have a contract for you. The budget's gone. We don't think you're that good of a player. You got to leave." And I refused to leave. Uh, conversation went on for 20 minutes and I was trying to prove to him that it was. And he said, well, look, even if you did prove to me that you, you're worth it, uh, I got no more money. The budget's gone. I said, I'll play for nothing. Uh, he said, uh, you can't do that. The requirements, the, the physical requirements you needed is that you're going to have to be at training every day. And I says, leave it to me. If, if you allow me to, I'll come training. So they were all the way through the 95 winter season. I played for no money, played for free to try and earn myself a contract. Uh, I can't describe to you how many times I questioned, what am I doing? Mm. What on earth? I'd, I'd have to get so I was working. Uh, when I got home from training, uh, you know, you don't train for eight hours a day with Bradford Bulls, you know, at the start, with, you know, you don't do nothing now. So I worked with my brothers part-time plastering and mixing and doing whatever. And I can't, I can't describe to you how many times I would have to get up <clears throat> real early to do a weight session, then travel to Bradford uh, and do some skills with them. The afternoon weight session, I can, because I'd then mm. go do uh, some work and get back in at God knows where I was, wherever I was, uh, to try and eat as much as I, I think I, I must have ate more than any man possible back then. I've always been a lean player, but the amount of work and the calories I was burning back then, it was unbelievable. So from the hours of about five to about nine o'clock at night, I would constantly eat, fall yeah. asleep, and then go do it all again. And did it for a full year. Uh, this intelligent toughness, I was playing in a, one version is, it can be described in many ways, but I had a vision of what it, what it looked like. I had a vision of, of what I wanted, what I wanted to achieve, an ultimate belief I could achieve it. It wasn't naive belief either. I just knew that when I was running on a field and my lungs were twice the size because they're about to burst, for some reason I could carry on uh, that just mm. weirdly. And I, I knew I had the ability to be able to push on beyond the blokes I was jostling with for positions at the time. You feel like you had the, the power time. of people to, to do that. So I kept that, that that voice was louder yeah. when I was waking up at half past five thinking I've got to do another weight session and I'm withdrawn and got no energy and got no money. Uh, I was also playing against a competition, which I didn't think was, you know, I've got to be careful here. I thought rugby league back then, and this is, uh, the generation I'm talking about is late 80s, 90s, early 90s. I think they had the wrong idea of what toughness was. And mm. uh, so many occasions you'd watch TV and certainly I'd watch it on a field where some bloke had come from three or four defensive positions away, fly in with his elbow raised and break the jaw of a bloke who's carrying the ball who can't see that bloke coming. Yeah. And it, you know, it created controversy. It was great TV if that's what you like. And... Uh, created headlines and those guys and bear in mind I'm I'm not uh, I'm new to rugby league I'm new to the sport I'm new to professionalism and I'm watching that and I'm thinking what a coward how does that work out mm. 
and it surprised and shocked me and then people were thinking uh, and saying he's one of the tough guys in the game and I never I thought no I don't see it I couldn't physically compete with those fellas I weighed I think I weighed about 94 kilos or 95 kilos when I first started playing <sighs> right you um, were lanky then and I was long yeah, and I was, yeah, yeah. you know too long and I was playing in a position where you've got to be 110 kilos mm. and thick and and, uh, and I couldn't compete with them physically then just then uh, that done me to say I wasn't tough though and the intelligent toughness in answer to your question is uh, is, is knowing what your version looks like mm. not what the crowd pleasing toughness is big arms and breaking people's jaw behind nightclub doors uh, on a field coming from four defensive positions out and some of that that we saw in our game just recently Steve be four or five years ago flank feet's not in anymore where yeah. two blokes would hold a bloke up where one bloke went and come and chopped his knees yeah. and tried to snap his knees yeah. I uh, they're not versions of toughness you might think it's technically smart or you might give it any other name but please don't call that toughness so that's yeah. not my version yeah you, so you've got a, a a much bigger perspective than me. I'm 25. Um, you've seen all this and, and you've said there's a moment where Tony Smith chatted to you and spoke to you and it's kind of, I don't know if it's, it's opened your mind or you, you've seen you've seen more into what you can do and offer. Um, I want to be able to tap into your mindset or your perspective from, from since you've grown up, how you see the new generation of players coming through because you've ch you chatted about different type of toughnesses Um different types of people what do you think is different to now I, I, obviously mentality I've spoken about mental health and spoke about period when, when I suffered back in 2014 and for me this is a um, a conscious way to, to open it up to talk more about it what do you see um, how do you connect with players young players coming up this, this is this is a really difficult one to nail down I don't think anybody's going to be able to nail this down for the next 10 years about mm. mental health Uh so often I hear people say, you know, if you're going to talk about depression, people are going to get depressed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If somebody's got issues and they're just pissed off at work a little bit and they're tired and they haven't eaten properly so they're dehydrated or you know, ill-nourished and you feel awful, don't you? Yeah, yeah. It's a huge you know? human nature, isn't it? And, yeah. and then people say, oh, well, that must be depression. Yeah. So there, there's the extreme version of how, how it can go wrong. But the other, ex the other end of the spectrum, Stevie... Is, uh, is a group of Catholic boys growing up where the priest is abusing them and they're in an environment where you cannot ask questions mm. and you can't say a thing. I've already alluded to the, the, my upbringing. I thought my upbringing was horrendous, really. Psychologically horrendous. Yeah. Some of my other brothers and my sisters had it worse than me. But uh, the, the, the culture and environment of do as you say, don't step out of the line, the old adage, children should be seen and not heard. Mm. Don't mind it. You know, I understand what, what that's about. But if a kid's got a question, you know, somebody's got a genuine question about something pretty serious. Mm. You've got the, the, the culture and the society that we've got has got to allow kids, and it does now allow kids to ask those questions. What you've got is probably a group of kids maybe asking too many questions. If I don't know if that's at all possible. I don't know, but maybe we're pandering too much to this wave of questions that's being asked. Right. But that's only naturally going to happen if you're going to say, I don't mind all that, by the way. Mm. I don't mind that. If a player comes, so get it back to my industry now. 
players ask far more questions now than they ever have done. Young players will come and ask you, Cam Smith, right? When we're signing Cam Smith on, right? <laughs> Shocked the hell out of me. He, uh, I don't think his mum wanted his, him to sign with us, but uh, Cam decided to sign. And his mum was only looking out for the best interest of Cam, for sure. But uh, so I've delivered a spiel about what I'd like the team to look like and give them both a bit of vision about how I want them to play. Some of the sexy stuff that they might, might have turned them on. And uh, another kid called Morgan Smith, who didn't sign with us, went on and done really well at Warrington. Uh, he decided not to sign. But uh, Cam said, uh, so what have you got planned then? Or something like that. And I said, well, I'm just in mid-spiel. He went, what have you got planned? He said, what, what's it going to look like for the next couple of years? And it was a cracking question. Mm. But I tell you, it unnerved me a little bit. And I thought, what are you doing asking me questions? <laughs> just you sign the contract, young man. Uh, but that's what you got. You know, I, I think you can only go back 15 years ago. A 16-year-old kid would never have said that. Certainly 25, 30, 40 years ago, you were mm. lucky enough just to be in the same room. I remember signing a contract with Peter Fox. I told you three grand over two years and I, I said, mm, you know, and I tried to be a, a negotiator and said, can it be three grand a year over two yeah. years? He went, no, it can't. Sign the contract or get out in, in more colourful terms than that. And that's just how it was. But you, you, do you think you were ultimately focused on, on what your job in hand was then? In your task in hand, you you had that that mission really, didn't you? To, well, I, to, well I, I backed myself and I think kids still back themselves now. I'm not one that says, this is, I, I think a lot of people are getting this wrong. When people say kids are softer now, I absolutely disagree. I so much disagree. But I've just put my mobile phone down there. They're, they're weird things, them, aren't they? The yeah. mobile phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're absolutely weird things. No one's, no one's done it before, have they? It's a completely new thing. It's a completely new thing. Nobody knows what to do with yeah. them. Nobody knows what the protocol is. I just listened to something on about Facebook on Radio 4 the other morning about Facebook, how people are noticing that the, a lot of it is aggressive and negative on, on Facebook. Facebook. yeah. You know, and, and everybody's saying, oh, isn't it great that the world's connected? And it is to a degree. But so, they, you know, we, kids never had to deal with that when I was growing mm. up. How long ago? 10 years ago? I don't know. But so iPhones are just very Ten. recent. But <clears throat> I learned something about coaching where... Uh, build an environment and the players will replicate replicate your environment I know that to be true players will replicate your environment if your environment's soft players are soft if mm. your environment's tough players will get tough if your environment's a tough place to be in those who don't like it will leave because there are some soft people for sure mm. in life uh, and those who are up for the challenge and are tough and like a, a tough environment will stay and that, and 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 because there were no mobile, mobile phones, and my dad tells me a story about how he used to ride around on a horse and trap with his dad. He never had a car, and that would have been a harder environment than the lad blokes who were born ten years later than that, and they had an harder environment. And if, every decade, the environment gets softer, doesn't it? Mm. Our society and our environment, again, is going through a process of trying to work out what. She will listen to the kids. She will allow students to have forums. She will allow students to shout people down on campuses. Mm. Nobody's got it worked out. But you've got to argue that the environment that the kids are growing up in is softer. The kids aren't softer, though. No. I can tell you from experience, you bring the Just kids the that come through the gates at Kirkstall and some of the young men I've got now at Toronto, the guys at London, wow, they were tough. 
They were tough, and they, they were as young as I remember a big kid called Dave Williams. He betters my story. Uh, so my story of hardship about having to earn a full-time contract, he wanted to earn a full-time contract, but he lived in North London, and he would have a two-and-a-half-hour commute on traffic, okay, to get to training for half, six, seven o'clock with uh, Harlequin's Rugby League, it was called mm. then. Uh, but he had to get up so early on the morning to work a shift in the gym, okay, to then finish fast as, to catch a bus, trains, planes and automobiles to get to training, doing that five days a week. And I remember hearing about his story. I remember talking to him and it was a hugely humbling experience. This is 2008. Mm. So we're only talking it's recent. Not, not long. Not That's long. tough, that. Yeah. That's tough, that. And some of them London boys, you know, they go through some, some uh, the travel that they have to encounter. My, my broad point is, I don't think people are soft. I think the environment's soft. Yeah. Do you think those experiences, though, you've had that anecdote there and have you, as you've grown up, gone through the marine and stuff, do you think those experiences, um, they help you? Do you think they help you? Do you think they make you a tougher person? Do you think that the more you can place on top of each other makes you a tougher person? I think if you're intelligent, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I think if you're intelligent, I know some lads who have, joined, who have left the Marines, who have lost, you know, they've lost the discipline, the, the bellies are out, you know, they're... Yeah. they're uh, you know, they'll wax lyrical about the time when they were in the Marines. And there'll be something still in them. I reckon if you put a green berry on the head, they would go run 30 miles and probably complete it. Yeah. Uh, but I think if you're intelligent, you realise what what are the good bits of the environment that you was in. The fact that I was in the Royal Marines doesn't mean I'm any tougher than anybody else. It just means at the time I was able to endure tough times more than the other guys who I joined up with. You end up, You end up... I don't know, enduring the toughness, which ultimately makes it tough, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Do you think there's something in that, though? What's the, the ability to endure it? Well, look, I can talk to my players and say, you're not in that much pain. Mm. You've heard me say that. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. not in that much pain. Stop wincing like that. You're, nobody's mm. dying. Somebody's shot you. Why are you yeah. rolling about on the floor like that? Yeah. And when we do some conditioning, and certainly when you get injured, uh, you're not in that much pain. I know mm. that from experience. Yeah. Whether you call that tough or not, I don't know. I think it's an ability, an intellectual ability just to say, calm down. Yeah, <laughs> I know yeah. your leg might be facing the wrong way, but it's you're not, not dead yeah, yeah. just yeah, yet, yeah. are you? Uh, and, and I think if you can just, uh, again, to, uh, 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 to qualify what toughness is, when everything's buzzing around you and things are flying and, and uh, shit might be hitting the fan, if you can stay focused... That's intelligence. Yeah. That's intelligence. And, and I can give that to players, I think, because of my experiences as the Marine. If that gives me an edge, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Is there any experiences as a Marine that you can draw on, that you can talk about or you can... Yeah, yeah, I would. I would uh, probably ones that you won't be expecting though. Uh, That's good. There's, there's two things that, uh, that stand out for me, which means when I said earlier... Uh, that I felt like when I'm coaching now that's what I feel like I'm here for yeah you know yeah. I think if you're lucky enough in life to find what you're good at and you're able to do the job for a living well that's that's lucky that isn't that yeah that's lucky isn't that there's yeah. a few people not doing what, what they want to do or yeah. good at um, I, I for now until I get departed again <laughs> I, I yeah I am get departed 
but I, I knew there was something different about me, odd about me. I'm not going to say better at all, just odd. Uh, and I describe it this way: when you go on, uh, <clears throat> when you go to Norway, we used to spend three months in Norway, and uh, it's minus at least minus ten, drops down to minus thirty and forties while you're there. And you practice for three months. You go out in the field five days a week, spend the weekend getting ready again and do it another five days a week. And you sleep in snow holes, sleep in tents, you sleep in nothing. And you just get used to warfare in the Arctic. And there's all versions of rules of do's and don'ts that you've got to get used to. And then you've got to learn to ski with weight on your back, which is hilarious. Watching blokes <laughs> who can't ski. And by the time they finish, they still can't ski, yeah. but they can walk with planks on. Uh, but before you get to Norway, you've got to be unbelievably fit and durable and conditioned. So the, from the months of October, November, December, they'll put you on mountain training. Uh, and basically, they'll take you anywhere where it's mountainous in the UK, usually Scotland, and, uh, and just five days a week, put a large pack on your back, send you up a mountain, and you come back down again. And for the first couple of days, you think, this is great, this. You're going for a walk. With your mates. In nature. In nature. It's fantastic. And then yeah. four days in, you've got a blister. Five days in, you're dying on your feet. Yeah. You do it week in, week one, week two, week three. And by the end of this period of two or three months, of all versions of warfare in the mountains, you're hard. You're tough. You've got some steel in you because you've just been pushed so hard. There's a moment where we're walking across the highlands of Scotland on the Cairngorms, Cairngorms. And uh, I don't know if you know much about the Cairngorms, but, uh, or Scotland itself, the amount of deer that's up there is unbelievable. Have you ever seen a deer jump? No. You, you, the surprise you how high they can jump. So across open expanses in the Cairngorms, they have these deer fences, which higher than the ceiling, you know, they're at least 12 foot tall. Uh, so if you're ever going to go on, on an exercise, as we used to call it, you know, to simulate warfare, yeah. and we're all on patrol, there could be 20 or 30 of us on a patrol. There'd be 20 or 30 yards of, I don't know, maybe not, not that much, 10 or 15 yards distance in between each guy. So if there's 30 of you, there's a fair old snake mm -hmm. of men wandering around, not in single file, everybody dotting from here to there trying to be Johnny Rambo. Uh, but you've got to cross these deer fences. And then we know, we look at the map and we know we've got a deer fence to cross. So you go to the landowner and you get a key, right? So weirdly, it's called being tactical. Once you're tactical, you pretend you're at war. You know, and everybody's walking around yeah. as if the enemy's watching you. When you're non-tactical, because you're an exercise, say, look, just time out, right? I need to change my socks and we've got to open this gate. Weird, you know? So uh, as we're walking towards this deer fence, by the time I got there, waiting for the gate to be open, it's not even just a, a single gate. Uh, there were two or three guys already waiting there. So whoever had the key must have been back in the snake somewhere else back there. You don't know where he is. You know, he could be the last man in the snake and it, from the first guy getting there to the last man, could be 20, 25 minutes. So I'm 18, haven't done anything in the Marines really, been about, got drunk a few times, already been in trouble a couple of times, uh, but loved all this. Give me all, as much weight as you can carry. There's something about carrying weight in the Marines, which everybody's, you know, it's, it's, all, thing, it? it's almost like he can carry three houses, so yeah. how good is he? So I'm carrying loads of weight. I'm about the fourth or fifth man there and we're all just stood, nobody's saying anything. It's pitch black. And uh, only two minutes went by and I thought, has anybody tried that gate? I get embarrassed when I think about it. When I, and nobody, another guy come up, just nodded, waiting for the key. 
right? And nobody said anything. And I'm looking at the kit and I couldn't make out whether the padlock was snapped shut because sometimes they're open. Mm. The landowner might have been doing some work and he might have left it open, you know. And uh, I couldn't take my eye off it. And another couple of guys lobbed up. By this time, there were about 89 guys there and I thought, I can't, I can't go anymore. So I just walked over, nice and calm. Hopefully nobody noticed all six foot four of me walking over there <laughs> with the biggest burger ever, right? And I just rattled again, it was locked. You couldn't, I couldn't describe to you the, the level of the ferocity of abuse I got. Yeah. You know, it's almost like insulting people, isn't it? You know, you yeah. go to a lift and there's two or three people waiting, you go press the lift and people go, we've already pressed it, dickhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Times that by a hundred, <laughs> right? And I remember thinking, oh my God, what a knob I am. What an absolute wanker I am. And then we, we kind of went the exercise, we got back to camp, but and people talked about that moment. You ever see that long streak of piss trying the gate? Who the f does he think he is? Who's he? Why is he? Who's given him the right to try that? And I thought, no, they're right. I'm yeah. only 18. Because everything's about hierarchy there. You don't yeah, have to have yeah. a rank. If you've been in the Marines five, six years and you've done a tour in Northern Ireland, if you're in the Falklands, I, did, I joined up five years after the Falklands, you know, you had a position. If you'd only just joined up, nobody spoke to you. Mm. For 18 months, nobody spoke to you. And I was in that period, nobody speaking to me. And you wanted to, to try the gate. And I tried the gate. And uh, and I'll tell you, um, for years, I th I'd, I'd think of that in bed and go red. <laughs> Nobody's watching me. And I'm going red and I'm thinking, yeah, there's something, there's something I don't like about me. It's, if there's a question to be asked, I've just seen some of the dickhead that puts his hand up. And then... When I start coaching, right, and I'm coaching you blokes, and you get drills wrong, and you get something wrong in a field, and you don't ask questions, mm. and you don't put your hand up, and you're all stood at the gate, on the off chance it could be open. I thought, no, no. I'm actually proud, because sometimes when you go try the gate, it's open. And it's the best thing you've ever done. But you might have to go through... Would you have been a hero if, if the gate were open? No, I, I don't know what it would have been. I probably would have still been insulted, <laughs> yeah. but, I, but I know it would have been the right thing to do. So I knew I was... Mm. Uh, I'll just quickly tell you another story, which is... is uh, it's on the same vein, and uh, was in Iraq. And uh, all, the, all the, the offense, if you like, had finished. We were waiting for a couple of weeks before we could go home. And they weren't, we said, right, that's over now. Just take care of yourselves. You're going to go home. You have to remain alert, though. And on a night time, you've got a big radio that you've got a man. And we had about uh, 15, uh, 18 guys inside these church grounds. That was our fort, if you like. Mm -hmm. We'd go on patrol just to say hello to everybody through the day. All the offensive had finished. But on the night time, you've got to listen to the radio because there was the Peshmerga, who were rebels. Right. They weren't particularly on our side, but they weren't particularly against us. Well, they kept having this bad habit of trying to kill us, trying to shoot us. So you have to keep on the radio just to make sure that nobody else is getting attacked and we, you can, you're aware of what's going on. You also have the secret police, the Iraqi secret police, who, who just, as you imagine, they're very secret. Yeah. And uh, they'll, they'll do anything to you. So yeah, if there's ever any movement in the area with any other lads, you know, 10 cl clicks away, we can hear about on the radio. So... Uh, so I'm doing my guard on radio, two hour shift, two well four, whatever it was. But you put this headset on and it go, and sometimes the break, the electricity and it breaks or the, the wire and it breaks. So there was interference. And every two or three seconds, there's a <laughs> in them ear. And it's irritating, but more than that, I couldn't hear anything. 
So I took that out, unplugged it, and put the handset in. It's like a telephone handset. I don't know where this officer came from who, who I had problems with during the tour. I was a dickhead. Uh, I won't blame him. But I was having problems with him. And uh, he just seemed to just jump out of nowhere. He said, my dermot, put the headset back on. I said, uh, sir, uh, boss, we call him boss. Boss, it's, uh, it's broke. You know, I just thought that would be the end of the conversation. It's broke, mate. You know, it don't work. He says, put the headset on. I said, no, boss, honestly, I'm, you don't mean, you're not getting this. The headset's broke. He said, uh, uh, I don't care. And it was almost like he were doing it because it's me and I'd made his life a nightmare while we're on tour. And uh, he says, put it on. When I can't. I can't put it on. What's the point of me putting it on when I can't hear the messages that are being sent over there? I can hear. This is not me trying to get away with anything, boss. There's nobody around. You know, there's no, it's not, it's not about the vanity thing or anything like that. He said, I don't care. Put the headphones on. And it was a moment. It was a moment. And I, 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 I understand how big this is. And I still regret. But put me in the same situation. I went, no. I can't. Because if the Peshmerga are going to take over, the Iraqi forces weren't completely gone, by the way. There were still dribs and drabs of them sneaking from bush to bush. Uh, but if any of them was gonna was kicking off again, I need to know, we need to know about it. I'm the man that goes into the room, stand two lads, get your boots on, we're on. We have to go help, you know, another call sign down the road or they're coming to get us. I'm the man who says that. And if I can't hear that message on the phone, what what on earth? What am I being told to put it on for? And I just said, no, I can't. So you got the troop sergeant out of bed and a couple of other corporals came out of bed. And they were all right with me, but they were saying, Mac, this is big. What you're doing now is big. And I says, I know, but what I think I'm doing is, is bigger than disobeying a direct order. Finish the story off really quickly. The officer, there was an investigation while I was out there. Uh, I didn't put it on, didn't put the headphones on. He went to bed. Everybody went to bed. I got called a wanker off a couple of boats because you can't just disobey a direct order. Yeah. I get that. Uh, but I don't know. I just, I don't know what the answer is. Because I do know you, the, especially there, if somebody says I need you at marker, you've got to be at marker. Mm. I understand that level of importance uh, of why you've got to obey orders. But surely common sense prevails. It is your, it's your joker. That, that, that checks everything, overrules everything. And yeah. there's two versions of you that when I'm looking at a game and, and I'm thinking, I know what people are doing in D and I know what people are scared of and that's why they do things in defence, certainly in attack. I know why people use those shapes in attack because they're scared of using something else. I'm just looking and thinking, this could backfire massively, but let's have a go at this. And so, that really turns me on. And I think when you deliver it to players in the right manner, like I've come up with a couple of systems, as you well know, which just haven't worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just push those a to few. one side. Yeah, yeah, Don't need to talk I'll about blame that. you, fellas, you didn't get that right. Uh, <laughs> I'm pushing them to But we've, we've had a couple over the years where, you know, I've asked you, I've almost asked your permission, haven't I, as players. I'm yeah. doing that with Toronto now, by the way. I'm asking their permission of something I know is going to work now because of my experience. But I'm saying, what do you think? Do you think this is going to work? And they all go, We've never done anything like this, coach, but let's go. Yeah. It's a slight change to what we're normally done. We understand how big effect this is. Let's go for it. And that that gets me out of bed in the morning. That that's that's what really turns me on. So it's the messages there is also there's almost like 
Thank you, sir. There's almost like um, a mix of social conformity, common sense or leadership. Um, and I remember that analogy, or that story you, you spoke to us about one, one time in video. Um, and we all knew the vision, all, all clarity on what we've got to do, but can you run through that story or that, that little, it's almost, almost like a fable, but I think it's real, real life, um, with the pilots? The um, cockpit moment. Yeah. That's not my story. Cockpit that, that, moment. That, it's not your uh, story, but I know Malcolm that you Gladwell use wrote a book called Outliers. Mm. Brilliant book. I'm not a massive book reader. Uh, I don't know who gave me the book. Brilliant book. And basically, it, uh, it explains that, uh, explains a few things. Uh, I think people accept now that most athletes that play at your level are to do with being born big and fast. Okay. Yeah. You've got an early birthday as well. So biologically, not only are you biologically, genetically better than most, that you, you start to grow airs in places quicker than those that got born in July. It, ma it massively affects mm -hmm. it. Yeah. But what he also argued is that uh, uh, hard work and 10,000 hours, which is accepted, but where you're from, who you grow up with, with the environment that, you, that you're with, mm -hmm. there's no surprise that Scotland is not, uh, is not renowned for its cuisine because it's minus 10 all year, where mm. Italy and France are, because it's warmer climates, you know, mm. that type of thing. So uh, he just explained that chapter and verse. But uh, I reused this with you. I called it the cockpit moment, didn't I? Don't have, yeah. don't have cockpit moments where uh, Korean airlines were encountering more more airline disasters than most other airlines. And there was an investigation into it. And once they exhausted all other avenues, they looked at the culture of the of Korean culture, which was very uh, hierarchical, I think. Yeah. Uh, and basically, a subordinate cannot question fellows in charge of him. You can't mm. really challenge them. And uh, this is a really dumbed down version, but the bloke who's in charge of the aeroplane, I don't know what it's called. Let's call him the Jeff. boss. Let's call him the boss. <laughs> His uh, second in charge is saying to him, listen, the instruments have, have, have broke here. I think we're too low. It's horrendous weather anyway. And I know there's some mountains coming up. And the, the boss turned around and said, yeah, got it. I'm not going to listen to you. And he was dismissed. So a minute later, the guy came and said again, I don't know if you heard me, but the instruments are broke. I think we're flying too low. There's some mountains coming in. It's horrendous weather. We're not going to be able to see them. Maybe we should try something different, go higher at least. And he was verbally told to wind his neck in. He said it again, and the bloke backhanded him in the cockpit. Yeah. So the guy shut up, and on the black box recordings, towards the back end, he just said something like, uh, well, uh, I think we're too low. You know, almost like, I'll have one more go at this, but then kept quiet. And the airplane flew into the side of the mountain and everybody died. Mm. And, and you, when you're reading, you think, wow. So culture, uh, conformity within a society is massive. It's absolutely massive. So Cam Smith, who's 16, may have to play in our team, you know, 18. May have to come in as an 18-year-old kid who doesn't have many stripes on his arm, doesn't have many runs on the board, but has got to conduct himself and ask questions and be inquisitive and got to know his onions as much as somebody who's played 500 games. And the only way you can do that is by asking questions. And if, if societies that we're in, the environment that we're in is saying, no, nah, don't you ask me any questions because who are you? How many games have you played? 
I don't know, which is the same as that big, long, lanky streak of piss rattling the gate, the deer gate. Yeah. I don't care what it, I don't care. At the time I did, because I, I was, you know, I was, I was conforming to society. Now I'm thinking, I'm, I'm the guy who tried the deer gate. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it. And you lot can, you lot can stay there. And quite often, it was the right thing to stay there because the gate's going to be locked. But it's not always locked, though. I know it's not always locked. And one day, I'm going to be the one that opens the gate and I'll go through first. Now, you can translate that to any environment you want, but I don't know. So you think there's a balance to get there, then? Well, what you can't do is think, right, I don't care about any rules. I know that. <laughs> so, you know, again, me, me analogy of game plans, you can't just say, right, well, let's, uh, let's go try running the other way. No, there's a, there's a skeleton of what we've got to do, a, a framework of what we have to adhere to. Because life is, you can't eat too much food and not have enough exercise or you get fat. That's fact and then, mm. then you die. So therefore, the, the, you have to have some discipline with what you do with your life, don't you? And if we all got to a traffic light or a roundabout and we all did what we wanted, then we'd all have crashes. So the, it's not wrong to conform. But while you're conforming to the framework of being a coach, of managing a company, of being a, a role marine, while you're conforming to those things that you know you've got to do to make things tick over, never ever stop asking questions, never ever trying to find it, never stop asking a, way of, a better way of doing it. When you come in for your 30th Monday morning that year in a 40 season weekend, Never stop asking questions. Never stop thinking. I wonder if we can just maybe hunt a bit more from Mark, or are we doing it yeah. too much? Or yeah. if we run down that side of the field, do you think that'll work? Never stop asking questions, knowing full well that if you put too much non-conformity in there, it's going to blow up in your face. Do you, do you feel like you're taking on new approaches in these last few years as well, as a coach, as a man, as you know, in in whatever walk of life? Do you feel like you're still learning stuff now? Well, the ten thousand hours rule is. I, I'm testimony to that because you do something for 10,000 hours, which is roughly four or five hours a day, four or five days a week for 10 years yeah. of excellent practice, not just doing anything, but excellent practice. Um, you become good at it. Uh, the theory is you become world-class at it, but you become good at it. And uh, experience now, see, I, I know what works. I know that sounds a bit conceited, but I know what works. Yeah. And... Uh, and when I was at London, I had an idea, I had a vision. I didn't know what worked though. And when I first, first year at Leeds, probably first year at Leeds, I didn't know what worked. Mm. I remember reviewing the grand final win in 11. And I remember thinking, building up for 2012. I'm not going to do that anymore. The conformity. Yeah. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to spend time in prison doing that. I don't, I don't think that's relevant to how I want us to play. And then you learn again and learn again and then you do it two or three times. Uh, I know what works. So... I don't mind. I find I find it quite liberating where, you know, people, coaches, players saying, "Yeah, but we have to. We've got to do this though. We've, it's got to look like that though." No, no, it doesn't. We can just go do this, and if you do that, I know that we'll have a good outcome to it. it sounds very simplistic. You've got to stay injury free. You mm -hmm. know, your players are going to be confident. You've got to have a good relationship with your players. The players yeah. got to be. There's Lord in it. You know that. Uh, so yeah, the these. It's not black and white, is it? It's not. It's not just a simple no. one answer to to most things. Um, I want to ask you about what you learned at Leeds. Um, e time at Leeds, uh, mostly 
during the tough ones, tough times, 16, um, 17, 18. I, I think those three years, are, um, for me, they were massive, massive years um, coming towards, you know, this 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 period now. Um, but staying on, on track of, 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 of getting understanding from players, getting understanding with relationships and, and all that, what do you think to mind games and stuff like that? Is that something that's, that coaches should think of? Is it something that that should be used? Is it because you've you, you've been in the Marines? You you know what it's like to I go through the tough I, times. I don't know what, what what do you call mind games? I, I I've had a couple of coaches that my version of mind games. If they say something, you're not quite sure what it means. Yeah, but you know he's challenging you with something. Yeah, like and, challenge. Yeah, put a challenge. Go, on and you go home and you think, I think I'm going to be, be better at something. I'm not quite sure what it is. Yeah. And uh, it's horrendous. Yeah. I hate it. I don't know what it was. It, all it does. Tony Ray was was uh, head coach of London. I took over London and Tony Ray stepped to the side and became DOR, director of rugby. Mm. He was brilliant for me. Uh, I'd had a really, really good apprenticeship with Tony Smith. Thorough as anything. But Tony Ray almost had another apprenticeship under him. But it was slightly different. Not better or worse. It was just a different version. And he'd give me a different out a different outlook into what men want, what players are thinking. All of a sudden, yeah. it wasn't about what did I want. He, he started to turn me towards, well, what do you think he thinks about that? Mm. Uh, and one phrase he used, he says, one of your jobs as a coach is to never put doubt in the player's mind. Doubt for themselves, what they're doing in the team, or as a, as a general thing? Never go home and, and never let the player go home and doubt that he's not going to be good enough. But at right. the same time, I've got to tell you that if you don't work hard enough, you don't do your bits right, you're not going to be good enough. Need to know. Yeah. But that's that's not doubt, though. I'm not saying, I don't know if you're good enough, you know, so you better yeah, prove yeah. to me that you're good enough. Like, listen, I, I do a lot of coaching clinics, or have done a lot of coaching clinics, and one of my biggest tips I give to coaches is don't make yourself the centre point of the team. You look at me thinking you're the most egotistical, arrogant man you've ever been, coach. What are you talking about? No, I never made myself the centre point of that team. That mm. team had a philosophy. That team had a had a vision. It had an ambition. And it, and you're always, I always describe it like you, uh, it, that the team's down the track somewhere there, and your aim is to get them up the track there to win the GF. Yeah. And, there's, and my job is to tell them what tasks, what obstacles, what pitfalls, what dangers there is along this route. And we'll go up, we'll go down, we'll go sideways, we'll go everywhere. And usually it won't be straightforward, especially if you don't lead. It won't be straightforward. <sighs> but if you all buy into this vision, if you always buy, if you all buy into the way of thinking, the way of operating, if you buy into the environment, we can get there. If I ever step on that track and say, you've got to come through me and prove to me, you lost it. Yeah. I challenge any player that ever said uh, you've, that, that I've said to them, you've disappointed me. I've never said you've mm -hmm. disappointed me. I always used to say and still say, you're letting the group down. We've got a vision here, we've got a job in here, and you're not helping. You, you're pulling away from it. Uh, would you... Would you? So that, sorry, so, so on just on the mind games bit, just the mind games bit is personal. Yeah. Isn't it? It's a yeah, personal yeah. relationship, not an healthy one. It's a personal relationship that you're having with a player that's beyond the coaching relationship. It's not putting it out there for the group, is it? It's not, that's, you're not the, the um, obstacle to get over. 
they've got their own obstacle that you need to kind of push on. I was I was difficult to deal with with the Leeds players. I believe mm. I don't think the play, Leeds players found me easy to deal with at all. But and and sometimes too brutally honest with them, you know. And if I had my time again with some of them, I'd soften what I say to them. But it was never mind games, never, never. Do you, do you feel like you you try to understand players as well? Did you did you feel like you wanted to understand well, players I, to get I, most out of them? Or I don't know. How you can ask them to do a job without trying to ask their opinion. Mm. I don't know. How you can get anybody to do any job without finding out what he thinks about it. And I don't know whether this is needed or not, but I find it really interesting to find out where they're from. Yeah. Where, where did you grow up? Where's it Where's it at? What's your attitude to hard work? Are you a Catholic? Are you religious? Yeah. But I've got to find out where the players come from, what their attitude is to life. You, you might be a bit off the wall, but I don't know. But I like to do that. So when I'm saying, look, this is the line you need to run or that's the position you need to be in or this is the player that you want and this is your role within the player. Yeah. It's way easier to deliver if I know who you are. So I would talk to you very differently than I talked to Andrew Dixon, who's at, who's at Toronto. Mm. Two different players, two different dynamics, two different backgrounds. Yeah. What What do you think you'd, you'd learn? What What did you have to transcend in 2016 to get to the point in 2017 when we won it at the end? Jesus, well. Is that, is well, that another interview of that? <laughs> no, I don't know if you can do this interview without talking about 2016. Mm. Yeah, it's... Uh, <clears throat> We'd come off the back of the treble. We won the treble in 2015. Mm. Because I had to talk about 2015 without talking about 2014. Mm. We'd come up with a, we'd come up with a game philosophy of uh, just hammering field position all the way through 2014. And uh, it was brilliant. I think three quarters of the way through the year, we'd only conceded eight points a game. We'd never conceded a try on the fringes or re rarely conceded a try on the fringes. There were only little errors through the middle or kick mm. tries. But then we weren't skillful enough and the bottom end fell out of us towards the back end. We'd won the Challenge Cup final first time in years and the bottom end have fell out of us in the end of 2014 and we were really, really tired. Uh, as a reaction to that, the environment changed. I got you all to do more skill than you ever have done. I got you, I got you in to do double days, uh, which in terms of negotiating, I reckon I could go out to the Middle East and sort it all out now. Because if I can get Jimmy Peacock, you, Kev, Rob, Maguire, Jones Buchanan, Bailey. I carry, I'll carry on, mm. right? Delaney. Right? If I can get you, Ryan Hall, if I can get you men to do double days, to come back and do another skill session in the afternoon when you've got this. What you got at the time is a blueprint that was winning trophies. Before I got there, Leeds Rhinos won three grand finals on the bounce. Mm. You know, mm. already been a successful team and had this yeah. blueprint. And I'm saying that, look, I've got a different blueprint. I think it can work. And to negotiate you all to do that and get you all to agree was one a big, a big achievement. But we ended up winning the grand final. And uh, just through a combination of events, occurrences, injuries, uh, Kirk's still getting flooded. No mm. pre-season. Biggest, mm. single biggest thing. No pre-season. Mm. Uh, I know for a coach, if you, if you haven't done your work in pre-season, you're buggered. Yeah. You've got to, you're just playing catch up all year. Well, we didn't have any preseason that year. It was crazy that. And uh, it was probably the most emotionally demanding experience I've ever had as a coach. Because it wasn't that my team were playing poor 
and and it was tough and everybody's talking about getting sacked and everybody's worried about getting the jobs it was I didn't know what the answers were yeah well that's not true I did I just couldn't I, I just better way of putting it I couldn't put the answer to it in place the answer to it was uh the physios will tell you if you haven't got the running in your legs and your legs aren't conditioned to run to then drop you into a session to run you're going to get injured mm. time's up by 25 men and that's what happened so I'm thinking the answer to this is we have a month off right <laughs> genuinely have a month off I'll put running into them with no games at the weekend uh, which means nobody gets injured anymore we'll lose four games but I'll go play the 19s and uh, so I'll bring you Brett Ferris Delaney's everybody back uh, with no injuries and we'll, then we'll we'll be away from mid lights and possibly in super eights but I couldn't you can't do that mm. I couldn't just say to 10 of you don't play for a month uh, and I just I was thinking wow so so they have to play we have to try and win but they cannot run uh, every week 15, 16 men stood on the sideline watching this train because we couldn't run and that was a scary thing that was really hard yeah and the way we wanted to play was needed running didn't it that's what it was that's what we were based on running wasn't it I think most coaches would say that but certainly our our version needed a run yeah. if you looked how Mooney used to play yeah. get standby and get ready for anything when he used to play we mm. had to be a, a mobile didn't we so uh, to bottom out in 2016 we actually finished the season really strong we finished with a bit of a you know although we went into the mid lates that was hard but we finished in good form and got ready for 2017 and uh, nothing profound happened in 2017 we didn't sign any players we signed Matt Parcel yeah. uh, no overall recruitment uh, no overall staff and uh, and just and got back to what we tried to do in 2015 uh, I, I have a few proud moments and usually as you well know this that some of your good moments is not about silverware some of your good moments in life where you think you know that was good that I'm really yeah. proud of what I did there it might be with your kids might be your wife might be with your partner might be anybody uh, but I, I I don't mind saying that to 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 get the group not only to play and defend better in 2017 to, to a degree where we win the grand final to get everybody to believe that it's possible mm. that's that was the biggest task the amount of times I'd walk in in that meeting room on a Monday morning and say right fellas this is where it's at and I'd give you the where it's at I reckon 15 times that year every one in every three games this is where it's at because we weren't completely out of the woods of 2016 were we no throughout the throughout the 2017 season there were some dips yeah yeah uh, so that I think for everybody that that would have been a huge moment for everybody to no matter what industry you go into about uh, a, no, a number of things 10,000 hours and believing in yourself and you know whatever you, whatever made you good get back to that type of thing mm. it's a really interesting period do you think there's like, like you said quite a few times off off um, off off the mic and stuff like that it's, you feel like it's the thing that you're doing you feel like it's the thing that's right for you and um, for me that's the big thing I've zoned in on is, is the values for me if I stay in, on course of my values as a person whichever direction it takes yeah. I feel I feel pretty good I feel pretty in sync um, but I also know that it's it's better it's good or it's 
more powerful, I think, to have a purpose that's bigger than yourself. Do you do you relate to that? Do you feel like it's you know the teams you created and the stuff you've been through? Do you think that's that's you could talk about the fans and and, and stuff like that for the Rhinos, but is there a specific kind of thing that that you can zone in on that and, and feel like it's bigger than yourself? Of course, but, yeah, of course. Twenty sixteen was bigger than me for sure. Yeah, everything came second. Mm. Every, I mean everything. Mm. Everything came second best mm. because. I didn't want to be the, the coach that took the rhinos down. Yeah. And it hurt. It wasn't even about a strap line like I didn't want to take the rhinos down. It just hurt. It hurt, it hurt us being that poor. Uh, I think if you're involved in something which is bigger than yourself, you know, I've got to talk about a, a relationship as well. You know, if you're involved in something where you think, well, what you believed is 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 the right way of being, all of a sudden you, you realise it isn't. I think you, you've got to go through that. All right, let me put it like this. If you don't ever go th through that, I think you're missing something. Yeah. If you go through life thinking that you're special and just simply who you are mm. doesn't need any stimulant, doesn't need any change from anybody else, I know, it's a bit scary, that's a bit sad, though. There's got to be some sort of conflict. I, absolutely, got to yeah. be. There's got to be. At some moment in your life, I've had a few, I've had a few of these moments, but some of me in your life, something's got to come and jolt you back from wherever your head was, using yeah. your own ass, and just say, Get "Look, mate, it's not about you. It's it's bigger. This. It's. Uh, I think if you can be involved in something that you're adding to, and it comes good, and we added to it, you know, you're interviewing me, so I'm talking about me a lot tonight. But that's not normally how it is. Yeah when I was with you guys, it was us, wasn't it? It was, we all did this together. That was, they're, they're special moments. I think, I think any one of the grand final or challenge cup wins were special moments. Of course they are. They've all got their own story. We could tell, a, we could do a podcast and every one of the grand finals coming through, especially 11. Uh, but that 17 one, I remember going up to Adam Cuthbertson who uh, met him for a coffee halfway through 2016. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but I'll keep it nice and brief. And Cuthbert was all over the place. Uh, he split up from his a girlfriend. He was having a really hard time with that. Yeah. Uh, he was on his own, living in Chapel Allerton, lonely. I don't know if he was clinically depressed, but he was doing a good impression of it. <laughs> and uh, unfit, constantly getting injured, playing like a bag of potatoes. And I just met him and I thought, I'm not going to put my arm around him. But he's not a bloke you go challenge either, Cuthbert. He's not, mm. you can't just tell him what to do. He's too intelligent. You know, he, he needs an answer, Cuthbert. He is absolutely, I've got 55 questions, first coach, you know. Yeah. I thought, no, he's not going to get any questions. I just said, are you up for this? And he won't answer me. He, he tried to answer in about 55 different ways. I says, no, Cuthbert, are you up for the fight? And he said something else. Said, I'm not interested in any of that. Shut up about your dog. <laughs> Stop going on about your flat. Stop going on about your girlfriend. I know all that. Stop going on about the preseason that you haven't had. I know all that. Are you up for it? And he couldn't answer. And I left him and said, he did answer. He did say yes, but it never convinced me. And I said, I don't know where that sat Cuthbert, but I've got to let you know that that's, you need to think about this. You know, so we addressed 2016. It panned out how it panned out. So that moment I went to him on the grand final field when we won. You know, you shaking everybody's hand and everyone's got their own little story, haven't they? Mm. You know, yours was your dislocated shoulder. And mm. when I shook your hand, you have a little word about, how on earth 
have you just yeah. done that it's just like a weird moment 10 yeah, seconds yeah. in it that's all it is yeah. with his I just said uh, can you remember that coffee we had in 2016 and uh, he welled up I did yeah and all the cameras were was on us and I thought right that'll do get back to being a bloke <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's that's the moment that I'm in for yeah, yeah. that's the moment I coach for that's the moment where, where you when I'm with a group of blokes with Toronto now and I'm barking orders at them and, and, and I'm I've got an intensity with them that they don't like I think like I had with you guys uh, but I'm doing it because I want that moment with them I want to share those moments with them and if I could give them the vision of it you know I'd, I'd get you know, that's the task if I can give them that vision of what it might feel like and look like that motivates them to do it even more there's got to be that there's got to be that sort of conflict, aren't there? Whether you're talking about like relationship level, team level, personal level. Well, how do you improve? Jamie Jones Buchanan, mm. uh, one of the most philosophical men that's ever been born, comes up with a good one. You, you can only learn through losses. Yeah. Really learn. I think that's a, a bit of a general point, but I think what he's saying is you're, uh, when, you, when you lose, that's the ugliest of you. When you when you're with somebody, I sound like I'm a relationship guru here, but when you're with somebody and you and you see the ugly side of them and you still want to be with them, you know they're keepers, don't you? Yeah. When you when you when your coaching's horrible and you're just a waste of time for that week, yet the players come and say, Coach, what do you want us to do? That's humbling that. That's humbling. Some of the stuff I got wrong. Yet the mm. the players would never say, Oh, you got that wrong. You know, it, it's yeah. it is it's humbling. So it's uh, you've got to get some. I think you've got to the conflict. You talk about conflict for sure. There's got to be some conflict, but don't be one of those dickheads that go seek conflict all yeah. the time. Like it's some sort of mission to be the bloke who asks the awkward question because it doesn't need asking. But I want to be the bloke that's asking the awkward question. Mm. They're not. They're not the black. I'm not talking about that version. They're just dickheads. Then. Mm. What. Um what advice would you give your younger self, an 18-year-old Brian Mack? I think we've covered quite a lot of that, but I, I think that's a good question to ask at end. Um, is your whole array of stuff that you'd tell, tell a younger self of Brian Mack or a simple message? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not sure. I think that'd be dangerous. I don't think I'd like to meet the 18-year-old version of myself. <laughs> would he batter you? I don't uh... <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was such a different guy, you know, such a different fella. I'm never an academic guy. I know coaches in today's world are usually academics, aren't they? Mm. They've all done mm. a degree in something, and some of them been at uni first. And certainly, uh, I, I'm not trying to play an, an old school party, but I really struggle with computers. I struggle reading. Not that I can't read. But gaining information from written stuff, I can't do. Uh, I can read a paragraph and I've got to go back and read it again and I still can't get it, you know. So the, the computers, I spend so much time pressing the wrong buttons. That it's just, well, it, it, well, you should get better. I've tried. I've been doing it for 16 years. I've tried. I can't. Uh, I was such... So the guy back then, it's... Uh, I don't know. I wish I hadn't drunk as much beer. Yeah. But I, I, wish, I, wish I, I wish I hadn't valued beer as much as I did. But for another podcast, I had demons. 
and I had some stuff there that wasn't good. Uh, but uh, I, I ended up doing some things that uh, that, that I want. I'm, I'm still not proud of it now. Uh, but I don't know what else I would have done. I, don't, I can't imagine. I probably would have said something to myself as an 18-year-old kid, but I know the 18-year-old kid I was won't listen. Mm. He's just going to do it anyway. Sweet. Good that. I remember Roy Powell chasing me down a street in Tenerife because every time we used to go for a drink on the night time, the end of season trip. Who was Roy Powell? Big Roy Powell, played for Leeds. Yeah. Big front row, back row, a legend of a bloke. Absolute legend of a man. Uh, sadly passed away a few years ago. Uh, and I joined Bradford North when Cal Fairbank, David Hobbs, Derek Fox, Brian Noble, Roy Powell, Johnny Amer, there's a few of us, Daryl Shelford, uh, a few a few names there. Crackerjack Dave Watson came as a fullback. Uh, Jerry Caudle, a Welsh winger. Wow. Some characters, some real men, and I'm this young, just young guy. The most clunkiest, garish bloke. Peter Fox called me garish. Look it up, what does garish mean? Garish. Yeah. And uh, I remember being on a pre-season, an uh, end of season drink in Tenerife and Roy Powell's uh, tried to stop me from jumping in the bins, right? <laughs> so on the way into town every night, there was this massive pile of bins from the day, stacked as high as this, this, uh, this room. And this, there, was, there was a traverse of a, or a concourse of wall that was above the bins, black box, when I say bins, black plastic bags. Yeah. This is the start of the night. So I've done a somersault into the bins each night, right? And uh, and it was like three or four nights in, and I, I mean, guess what I smelled like after I came out of that? But that blow, I don't know why I never considered any of that. I just thought it would be something Don't work for a night out, was it that? And, uh, and I remember Roy Powell chasing me down the street, right? and I was never a fast runner, but neither was Roy. And it was the funniest thing ever where Roy tackled me, trying to prevent me from landing the bins, and we both ended up falling into the bins. <laughs> Tenerife mm. nights out when yeah. were that when were that when? 93 1993 Dave Aaron I met Dave Aaron there truly got to know Dave Aaron who was uh, as my he was my mentor stay off the drink and the bins stay off the drink get out the bins and get out the bins that's, yeah. that's me last advice I give on your podcast 18 year old self I'll run with that yeah I'll run with that that'll good Class, mate. Good man. Legend. Thank you. Legend. Appreciate that, mate.